If you're a football player in high school, the coach has a lot of power over your life, can make your life pretty miserable. You've seen, remember the Titans, you remember what it's like, they went away for two-a-days, three-a-days even at camp in Gettysburg, and, and he's just working them and working them and working them, and it's horrible. they got to do all that stuff. Well, some of you have memories of that too, of high school camps and two-a-days. They didn't give you water, you know, they'd give you a lemon to suck on, you know, but no Gatorade, no anything, give you a little salt to replenish, but it'd burn your, it was terrible, uh, those were bad days. All right, so picture yourself in that point, and you've got a coach who says, listen up. And you say, who are you, old guy, to listen up? And then he makes you run wind sprints forever, do monkey rolls, do, you know, call out each other and hit each other. It's horrible. You're not just doing it once a day. You're doing it in the middle of the day. You're doing it at the end of the day. You got it under the lights and remember the Titans. I mean, these guys have been doing it for a week. Did you ever stop to think while you're watching that movie, where did they do their laundry? They didn't do their laundry. Just like you didn't do your laundry, by the end of that week of two-a-day practices in high school, you're not hanging your T-shirt up. You're, you're sitting it up. It's just kind of, it got stiff it, if it half dried out. And it's, your jockstrap's not in great shape. Your gym shorts are not in great shape. So here's what happened. One day, the head coach stood up and said, all right, listen up, men. And all these guys, you know, stop because what, oh, is he going to make us do three a day? Is he going to make us run extra sprints? He's going to kill us all. What's going to happen? He says, I got good news and bad news for you guys. The good news. At our own expense, we have got a change of underwear for every man here for this next day of practice. Oh, yeah, they're going crazy. What could possibly be the bad news? All right, but I do have some bad news. Okay, you change with you, you change with you, you change with you, you change with If a man had that kind of power over your life, he said, listen up, you'd listen up. You'd want to know, okay, what's, what's coming here? Well, that is exactly what the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. To make it as simple as I can, it is listen up. But... As I tried just using those magic words four or five times this morning, and I was obviously trying to illustrate a point, but, I, you know, you do that four or five times to get you to listen up. You're not going to listen up unless you've got some reason to listen up. And that's exactly what this author gives us. In fact, he gives us three reasons to listen up. And he introduces those reasons with words that we would expect to indicate reasons. Therefore, oh, Therefore, that's going to be important, lest and for. Those three words all indicate here's why you should listen up. So let me read for us Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then let us listen up to what this author has to say because, well, you'll understand the because in just a moment. Therefore. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. One verse will give us the point, and it's the first verse. We're going to begin with the first verse. We're going to end with the first verse. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Listen up. Pay attention. It's really important. Why is it so important? All right, well, we're going to look at that. Listen up because of what I have said before is the therefore. Whenever there's a therefore in Scripture, find out what it's there for. It's, that's a great principle of Bible study I learned years ago. You find a ver- If it says therefore, find out why it's there. What's it there for? What's the point? What's the connection? And he's saying, therefore, listen up because of what I've told you previously, which gives me a great opportunity to review. And I can review simply by using the titles that we looked at in the last two weeks. Why should I listen up? Because this is it. This is the final revelation from God. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is argument. This is the great and final revelation from God for humanity. So yes, you paid attention to the prophets in the olden days, in the past. But now in these last days, you need to pay attention to God's Son. Why else? Well, verses 4 through 14 of chapter 1. You need to listen up because of what I've said in the past. I said this is it. I also said Jesus is greater than angels. Just as a son is greater than a servant. So if God has spoken through his servants, yeah, you ought to pay attention to that because they're the servants of God. But if God has spoken to us through his only begotten son, you really ought to pay attention to that because he cares even more about his son. So that's the argument of verses 4 through 14. The Son is greater than the servants. The Son, Jesus, is greater than all the angels. Then we need to be careful and listen to him. Jesus himself gives pretty strong confirmation to that line of reasoning, to that therefore. In Matthew chapter 21, he told a story very much toward the end of his life. And it's a story that's good for us to listen to again now or here. And and so listen to the story. And that's a great way to introduce it. It's, it's a story. So just listen to the story. You don't have to read it. You don't have to follow along exactly. Just listen to a story. Matthew 21, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other students, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, well, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you 
and given to a people producing its fruit. They didn't listen to the servants of God throughout the Old Testament. And now at the end of Jesus' life, he's saying, and they're not listening to me either, and I am the very Son of God. You're in a dangerous, dangerous place because you are not paying attention to this word, and it, there are consequences of not obeying it. So because this is it, this is God's final revelation, this gospel message, and because Jesus is greater than angels and he's the one proclaiming it, therefore, therefore, let's pay even closer attention, much closer attention than those Old Testament forebears of ours did. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. There's a second reason why we need to listen up. It's the second word. As I said, we're going to begin and end with verse 1, but in between, we're going to look at verses 2 through 4, an argument that is developed around the word for. I'm going to give you my reasons why you need to listen up for, verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that was declared to us at first by the Lord? And then it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Four is how that, word, uh, that, that argument begins in verse 2. So I'm going to give you the reasons why we must, pay, we must pay much closer attention. Four, and now we'll be able to see. The argument takes the form of moving from the lesser to the greater. If this had consequences, oh, how much more that? Or if that had consequences, how much more shall this have consequences? So we're going to see a contrast between great and greater. And that's an important contrast because it's good for us to know that the author to Hebrews doesn't have anything bad to say about the Old Testament. He's not complaining about the Old Testament. He doesn't think, oh, that's obsolete, it's stupid. It's No, there's nothing wrong to say about the Old Testament except maybe one thing. We'll see what it is in a minute. But as good as the Old Testament is, we need to take the Jim Collins train and move from good to great. We need to move from great to even greater. And so that's the form the argument's going to take. In order to understand the argument, we need to see what was great. And that's uh, how this begins in verse 2. So that, that former way of communicating, that message that came to us in the past was great. That was great. It was a great message. And that's the, the message is what's involved there in verse 2. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable. The message declared by angels. What, what is that message? Well, that message is the law of God. It's the law that was communicated to Moses at Sinai. And it was a great message. And it's still for us today, a great message. And so we need to understand that message and see that it has tremendous value for us. It's a great message. Nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong at all. What's wrong with the law is when it is misused. It's used for something it was never intended to be used for. And so if we're misusing the law, then there's great danger there. But the law itself is a good thing. And Paul goes into great, great pains to make sure he explains that um, to everyone. All right, so I want to give you the three uses of the law that are proper and good and that were intended when the law was given to us. And the first of those is that the law is compared to a straight edge that we could hold up next to our lives and recognize, ooh, 
I'm pretty off plumb. I'm pretty crooked. I'm not, I'm not measuring up well to that straight edge. Paul communicates that use of the law several places, but Romans chapter 3, verse 20 is perhaps the clearest. Where, And in fact, it's J.B. Phillips' paraphrase where he says that the law is the straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. This is how it comes across um, in the ESV. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 7 makes the same point, that it is through the law uh, that we know sin. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But once I had that law saying, you shall not covet, all of a sudden I'm aware of all the coveting that I do all day long. It's a little bit like, a bit much, much more serious than to say, don't think about red monkeys. Just don't think about red monkeys right now. Stop. Some of you are still thinking about red monkeys. I said, don't think. Well, you planted it in my head. Now that it's there, I've got to think about red monkeys. And so here, uh, it's, it's like the law says don't covet. All, all I can think of, I, I do that all the time. I want my neighbor's car. I want my neighbor's job. I want my neighbor's wife. I don't want to say that, but I... Well, all of that was in that law, don't covet. And so the law was given to us to show us how crooked we are, how badly we need a Savior. We need a solution. And so that was the purpose of the law. Um, second purpose of the law is that it's intended to be a curb. It's intended to be that concrete curb. Here I am driving down. I want to veer this way. You know, they've got all these fancy detection devices in these modern cars. Well, they didn't have those in days past. They put a curb on the street. So if you started to drift too much, you'd ruin your tires or whatever, and you realize, okay, I can't do this anymore. I've got this curb. It's keeping me in the center of the road. It's keeping me from drifting too far. The law is, is viewed as a curb in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 8, where Paul says, We know that the law is good if one loses it, it uses it lawfully. So understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, etc., etc., etc. That the law isn't for good people. The law is put down here for bad people to keep them in the road. So it's a kind of a civic use of the law. It keeps at least the honest citizenry or the upright citizenry from breaking the law too much because they're ashamed of the consequences, they're embarrassed, so they're going to keep it on the, on the straight and narrow, and it, it helps those that would be outlaws from getting too far. It's a curb, and so we're great. We don't want a lawless society. We want a society that has laws in it so that there's a curb keeping us on the highway. There's a third use of the law that we in the Reformed tradition believe in. Other traditions of Protestants and such aren't quite sure about the third use of the law, but I'm very sure about the third use of the law, and that is that the law is a target. It is God's intent to show us this is the way I want you to live. If you're wondering, if now you say, oh, I can't believe how sinful I am. I cried out to the Lord to forgive me. He did forgive me. He gave me a new heart. He took out that heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. Now I want to do your will, Lord. What do you want me to do? Well, all you got to do is look at my law, and that shows you this is the way walk in. This is, this is how it would please me for you to live because this law reflects my character. We're going to talk a lot in Hebrews later in the book about the distinctions within the Old Testament law between the ceremonial law and the civil law and the moral law. 
three different types of law we encounter in the Old Testament, and they're very important, particularly the ceremonial law to the argument of the book of Hebrews. We don't need to get off on it today except to know that that moral law of God that is based on God's character, which does not change, is still in force today. The Ten Commandments are still the, the litmus test, the, the straight edge for a Christian life. We want to obey those Ten Commandments in order to please God. It gives us this target that I can shoot at with my bow and arrow, and I'm going to zip right for the bullseye, right in the middle. And the reason I say that that is what is in view in this word law is because that's the etymology of Torah. And many of you, maybe most of you know that Torah is the Hebrew word for law. And it comes from a derivation meaning to throw at, like a sling you're going to sling at or you're going to shoot at, and you've got a target, something that you're aiming at as you throw it. So this Torah is the aim of our lives. It helps us see this is the way God wants me to live. I'm going to aim for that. And after we become believers, we want to please God. We want to do what he says. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a contradiction of the Old Testament law. It is an amplification of it. It is to show that this law was intended to penetrate to motive and intended to um, also take under account externalities, consequences. So it's very, very important this law. So follow this law. There are three proper uses. An improper use of the law is to think that by following it, I can be saved from my sin. I can't be. It's impossible to be. And that's the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This author is not denigrating the Old Testament. He's just trying to say the proper use of the law. That was great. That was a great message, that law. And that great message came from great messengers. So that's the second part of his argument here, that there are great messengers for this law. It was given to us through angels, the message declared by angels. And why does he say that the Old Testament law was given by angels? Well, by a relatively obscure Old Testament passage that became more emphasized during the period between Malachi and Matthew, the 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period. That Old Testament passage is Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon Seir, and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So when God came down to deliver his law on Mount Sinai, he came with tens of thousands of his heavenly host, angels. So the angels were there with him. Well, that got picked up on in the intertestamental period. It got picked up on particularly because of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in that translation, it's even clearer that it's the angels that are with God in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to Moses. In the New Testament, there are a couple of places that uh, emphasize the point even more. One is Galatians chapter 3, verse uh, 19. The other is Acts 7.53. I want to look at the Acts passage first. I decided suddenly right now. Uh, and then we're going to look at the Galatians passage, which has many valuable things to say. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, before his martyrdom, is speaking to the crowds, and, and uh, he is kind of retracing all of the Israelite history. And so in verse 53, he gets to the end. He says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You knew that the law wasn't just of human agency. No, it came from the very messengers of God. Angel means messenger. It came from these great, grand, glorious messengers that people were tempted to bow down and worship when they made appearances in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. These great beings were there with the giving of the law. They are the messengers of the law. So that was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Then Paul has the same concept when he, in Galatians chapter 3, um, tells us more about the law and angels. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Very much like what he says in Romans. It's the transgressions are added to the law to help us see that there's sin, that we're out of accord with God's will. We're broken. We're fallen. We need a Savior. We need to be saved. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. But if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Why then the law? Again, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the role of angels in giving the law is stated in a sort of murky way in the Old Testament, and it's picked up on in the New Testament, made more explicit. The angels were accompanying the giving of the law. They were the messengers of it. And therefore, people might think, okay, well, the, those great angels gave us the law. Well, one greater than angels has spoken now in these last days. One even greater than angels. But that doesn't mean that angels are no big deal. Like, who cares about them? No, angels are great. So in verse 2, we're seeing that that was a great message. Those were great messengers. And that was also great danger. There was danger. What was the danger? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Still, toward the end of that verse. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, this Old Testament law is reliable. It's trustworthy. It's good. I'm not saying anything negative about it. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That word retribution uh, is punishment or reward. It's either. It depends on the context. The other places in Hebrews where it's mentioned, it's talking about a reward. You do this and that will result. The consequence will be that. So you obey and you will receive life. You disobey, you receive death. It's always a perfect punishment fits the crime. So here are these two kinds of crime. And uh, the words that are used here for sins are every transgression and every disobedience. Some commentators were wanting to make a distinction between the two, that the transgression is a surpassing, it's a, it's a positive breaking of the law. It's, the law says, thou shalt not pass that line. And I say, I shout. And I go right through it. I transgress it. I go over it. It's a positive violation of the law. It's a transgression. The disobedience 
in fact, refers rather to a negative transgression of the law, or I shouldn't use transgression, a negative breaking of the law. The law says, thou shalt come past that line. And I say, nah, 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 nah. I shall not. I'm not going past that line. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to measure up. I'm not going to follow your stupid rules, in effect, is what is said. With, and so all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We come short. You can go past what God says, do not pass, or you can fail to reach what he said, you must go past. Either way is disobedience or transgression. It's sin either way. And sin will receive punishment. Sin did receive punishment. When the Old Testament saints sinned, they received punishment. The punishments are laid out in detail. Okay, when you sin in this way, this is exactly what should happen to you. When you sin in that way, then that should happen to you. Every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution. Well, if that was the situation in the Old Testament, where well, there was great danger to violating the law of God. Let me take you now to the new covenant, to the new testament, to the final word of God, a word spoken by his son, not by his servants, the angels or the prophets. No, this is God's final word spoken by his son. Talk about danger. Let's look at this, which is much greater than that, which was great. That was great, verse 2. This is greater in verses 3 and 4. It's a greater message. What's the message that we now have received? It's not the message of the law that was delivered by the angels. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We have a message of salvation. We don't have a message only of this is the law. If you want to please God, then you better do that. Well, I can't measure up. I can't do it. The Old Testament recognizes that. There is Old Testament provision for failure to keep the law. In fact, that's the whole sacrificial system is for that. And the whole idea of faith that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or that David poured out his heart in these penitential psalms and he knew he had forgiveness of sins not because of his meticulous keeping of the sacrificial law but because of the grace of God and he threw himself on that. He knew that a redeemer would come and so he was trusting in God to save him by that redeemer. And Paul picks up on both of those Old Testament saints as he works his way through the argument in Romans. In Romans 4 he talks about uh, Abraham first and then also David. So Old Testament saints understood the gospel, understood the good news in addition to the law. They weren't all just trying to make it to heaven by keeping the law. Abraham didn't. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul makes much of that. They make much, New Testament writers make much of Habakkuk um, chapter 2 where it is told in verse 4 that the just shall live by faith. That faith is what will justify, not our works of the law. And so three times, including in our author, our author in Hebrews, we'll quote from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. So don't get this idea that the Old Testament doesn't know anything about Jesus, doesn't know anything. It didn't call him Jesus, but it knew that great David would have an even greater son and that he was the one to whom we look for restoration of a broken and fallen world through a great salvation that he inaugurated in the first century and that he will culminate in a previous century still unknown. And so we haven't had the big reveal yet on when that's going to come, and we won't until the end. But we know it's coming, and that gives us great hope to push on. 
So what is then the, the greater message? The greater message is this message of salvation. It is the gospel. The contrast is between the law and the gospel, but not as two different means of salvation, rather of two different means of showing first through shadow, then through substance what it means to be saved. F.F. F. Bruce, a famous, justly famous commentator, generally on the New Testament, specifically on Hebrews, says that the Old Testament law is like a rough draft. It's like a, uh, a movie preview of coming attractions. So we get a shadow there, but we get the substance when Jesus actually comes. And that analogy of shadow and substance is exactly the one that our author is going to use at chapter 10, verse 1, that the law is a shadow of the good things to come. Jesus is the substance. It's all wrapped up in him. So this message is even a greater message than Old Testament law. It's a message of salvation in the Son of God, and in, in that there's great hope. This is greater because it's from greater messengers. Uh, this message, what we have heard, he calls it in verse 1, in verse 3, he calls it such a great salvation. Well, it has even greater message, messengers, and there are four messengers that are listed in these two verses. First, and that's how the author puts it, first, um, it was declared to us by the Lord. The Lord is Jesus. That's the name for Jesus. Jesus is Lord is the New Testament um, statement of faith. Lord was the name for Yahweh or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus to show, yes, Jesus is God. So the first one to announce this great salvation is Jesus. True or false? Well, Jesus, I don't remember him really announcing the gospel. Yeah, he did. The very beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus after his baptism by John, comes out of the wilderness and he begins to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And that's the theme verse for Mark's gospel. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then in Luke, we have a different form of it when he goes to his home synagogue in Nazareth and they ask him because he's now become something of a rabbi and he's got a little bit of a following, like, well, speak to us. You know, we've read the scripture for the day. Uh, or would you like to read the scripture and comment on it? And so Jesus reads the scripture from Isaiah 61.1 that this is, uh, I'll announce to you, the freeing of the captives and that this is the day of the Lord. And then he sits down and he begins to teach and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this Isaiah 61.1, it's true today. It's fulfilled in me. The good news is here. So Jesus was the first one to announce this gospel message. Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, um, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's Matthew. So we've seen Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John also. Here's Jesus giving this good news. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So... Jesus is the first to announce the good news. The Son of God, not a servant of God, not the angels of God, the very Son of God, begotten, not made, announces this great salvation. That's a greater messenger than the angels. But he doesn't even stop there. The second messenger of this greater salvation, it was declared to us first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. 
it was confirmed to us. It was made even more sure because it wasn't just Jesus who seemed like this figure. Like, we're not sure what to make of him. Was he human? Was he divine? What? But then he's raised from the dead. But we didn't see him. We don't know. Well, there were people who saw him raised from the dead who became his chosen agents and emissaries to preach the same gospel message. And we heard it from those who heard. So those who heard means the apostles. Apostle is not the same as uh, disciple. There is a distinction. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus. There were 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus. Plus or minus a couple of exceptions in there. And then he lost Judas. Then he gained uh, Matthias. So you got some coming and going. But apostles are different. Apostles are the commissioned representatives of Jesus. They are the ones who are selected by Jesus to give. I've lost hearing apparently. Uh, well, it's not with me. I've got my little green light still on. Can you hear this? Can you hear? Oh, put it up higher. I think those guys were just bored back there, actually. <laughs> now, that I, now that I think about it, all of this stuff was just like, I'm just doing some exercises to stay awake here. Okay, well, back, uh, back to the text. Uh, the greater messengers are those who heard. Let me just quickly... Uh, do this for us. From John chapter 14, Jesus is promising on the last night of his life here that he will send uh, another comforter to them. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another comforter to you. And he will lead you into all truth. Jesus is predicting in the upper room the creation of the New Testament. That we have prophets who have written the Old Testament for us. And they were attested by God as prophets through miracles. Moses, remember the miracles he could do about making his rod turn into a snake or putting his hand in his cloak and it would be leprous. And so he had miracles and uh, the others have miracles as well that they can perform. Well, in the New Testament, he picked 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And he made those 12 the leaders of this church that would come from them. And he said, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. That's not a promise for all of us in Bible study. Well, I don't really need to study the Bible because whenever the time comes, Jesus will lead me into all truth. I can discover truth without even studying. No. That was a promise for the apostles that they would write the New Testament, not, an, not a promise to the disciples that they wouldn't need to study the New Testament. No, we want to study it. Because it's an even greater salvation that is its subject. And it came from the apostles, the formal representatives uh, of Jesus. All right, bear with me here for a moment. This is to your advantage that I'm doing this. This is much better than my putting my um, watch down on the table. This is a clock that I'm putting down on the table. So that'll help me even more. All right, uh, John 15, same promise again that this Holy Spirit will call to your minds everything that I have said to you. So, great promise there also. And then John 16, another, a third promise for the creation of the New Testament um, through Jesus himself, his own lips, um, are saying, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but on mine. John 15, 26, again, the same thing. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And 14, 26. The Helper, 
The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. To those who heard are the apostles. We have the word of God confirmed by them. First spoken by the Lord Jesus, now confirmed by the apostles. And if that's not enough, it's confirmed by God himself. God himself also confirmed this message, declared he attested to this message. Verse 4, God also bore witness. How did God bear witness? How did God say all of this? Well, through miracles, signs, and wonders. That's how God showed And so that's what God did even with Jesus. That's how people should have known Jesus is the Son of God because look at what he can do. Nobody can do that unless he is sent by God. Nicodemus understood that. In John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus by night and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are from God because no one could do the works that you are doing except that he came from God. You can't turn water into wine if you're just a human being. Or God's got to be behind you. You must be a great prophet, but God's behind it. And so those miracles did confirm the message. John chapter 5 uh, is a helpful cross-reference at this point, verses 36 to 38. And in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus is going to make that very point. He says, you know, I, I'm not bearing witness on my own. Um, I do bear witness about myself, but there's another who bears witness about me. And you know him. His name is John. John the Baptist bore testimony to who I am. But there's even a greater testimony than John. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about him. You've never heard his voice, his form you haven't seen, You don't have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one that he has sent. But you've seen his works. You've seen these miracles. Nobody can heal a blind person, born blind from birth, and give them sight unless God does it. And that's true throughout the New Testament. You can't say to a lame person who's been lame from birth, get up and walk unless God is working through you. So God himself attested this greater gospel message of salvation through miracles. And there are three different words that are used, and they help us toward a good definition of a miracle. That these are powers. There are great works, powers that a human agency could not account for. They are wonders. They get our attention. They're amazing with their gaze. Like, whoa, did you see what just happened? And they are signs. That they are announced. They are not just random acts of wonder that a magician might do, but they come with claims attached. So the apostles say, we speak for Jesus. Yeah, how do we know that? Because in the name of Jesus, I say, rise up and walk. And that lame man in Acts 4 gets up and walks, and all of a sudden they're praising God, going, who can do that? They must be divine representatives. So miracles confirm those who make a claim to speak for God. Prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is established on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So, this is a greater message. It's a greater message. It's a greater message of salvation and greater messengers. Jesus himself, the apostles, God the Father, who through the miracles shows that he's on board, and then God the Holy Spirit. So we have the Trinity here in verses 3 and 4. And all members of the Trinity, all persons of the triune God, God confirmed this message that has come to us now. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, this is God. This is not just one 
person of the deity. This is all three persons of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is confirming this message by distributing spiritual gifts. It could be that the Spirit himself is the gift, so that the apostles were able to give the Holy Spirit to those who believed in Jesus. And so that was a confirmation that this really is the gospel. Or it could be gifts that are given by the Spirit, like the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost. All the people are going, what? Who are these guys? I hear, I hear Cappadocian. And uh, they grew up in Cappadocia, though they were Jewish, but they were living in Cappadocia. And they came, I can hear these guys talking in Cappadocian. I hear them speaking Latin. I hear them speaking Spanish. I hear them speaking. And so all these different languages it was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then there was a gift of interpreting tongues. There was a gift of miracles. There were gifts. So those gifts of the Holy Spirit, sovereignly distributed, might also be confirmation of this message. This is the real deal. Pay attention to it. Either way you take that, you can see that all three persons of the, God, of the Trinity are involved in this confirmation. Now here's where we get into the crux of the matter. That was great. Had a great message, the law. Great messenger, angels. Great messengers. And great danger, every transgression or disobedience got its perfectly just retribution. But this is even greater. There's a greater message. It's a message of salvation, of life and death, of eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Should you pay more attention to that? Yeah. So eternity's on the line. And there are even greater messengers. So you're going to pay attention because this is God himself speaking. First of all, through his only begotten son, then through the apostles that that son selected, then through God the Father himself confirming it with signs and wonders, and then through the Holy Spirit also giving his gifts to confirm this message. And then you need to pay even closer attention to this greater message and greater messengers because there's even greater danger. So let's look at the danger for just a second. And what, first of all, the obvious maybe, why is this a greater danger? In these four verses, six times the first person plural pronoun is used. Six times. Five of them, we. So you just got to do, you know, uh, look at this. This is, this is the little pinky school of scripture here. You know, we, 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 all the way home. So we see, we, 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 we. Five we's, one us. This is a greater danger. Why is it a greater danger? I mean, they got punished badly if they disobeyed the Old Testament law. That sounds pretty serious. No, this is our danger. That was their danger. I can guarantee you I am much better at talking to you about your problems. I will give you a solution within 50 minutes. Probably I'll come up with something like, I think you need to pray a little bit more, need to read some more scripture. Here's a verse. Read both of these verses and call me in the morning, you know, and I can dispense advice. I can... Uh, that's not all I do. I'm making a little light of it, but you get the idea. It's so easy to cure your problems. You think they're hard. They're not that hard. I can fix them. My kids, that's harder. My wife's problems, they bother me even more. But my problems, nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody could possibly fix them. They're so complex. They're so weighty. I worry about them all night long because, ah, Okay, well, just give the advice you give for others. Hey, others don't bother me as much. Because when I go home at the end of the day, they're not there with me. But when I go home at the end of the day, I am there with me. And I brought all my troubles with me. Worry, worry, worry. Won't leave me alone. Well, that ought to get your attention then. If this message, this message that we're looking at in the book of Hebrews, this message about Jesus, this message about salvation affects us, 
then we better pay very careful attention to it. And that's the author's argument. No, it affects us. This is for us. This is ours. This is we need to do this. It's also a greater danger, not just because it affects us personally and it threatens us personally, but because it threatens us that we might neglect such a great salvation. That's the wording in uh, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Pay no attention to, dismiss, neglect, not a big deal. This author is saying, do not neglect this message. We may not get another chance. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You need to decide to follow Jesus today. And no turning back, no turning back. One of you suggested that hymn or put it back in my head. I thought, you're right, that's great. That is the message of Hebrews. I've decided to follow Jesus, and now there's no turning back. Not going to turn back. I'm going to continue to follow Jesus. And the Hebrew uh, recipients of this letter were tempted to fall back, to give up. And he says, don't do that. Do not neglect such a great salvation. But I want you to think in a little different way. Yes, it's true, we could neglect it. We who have begun to follow Jesus might neglect such a great salvation. That would be horrible. But I want you to, you can close your eyes for a moment if you want. I want you to picture somebody in your mind's eye. This is a friend or a family member, somebody you really care about. And that person is neglecting this great salvation. Is that person in danger? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What might you do about that? And that's not a rhetorical question, and it is now. Don't answer it right now, but on your sheet, you can write something down and think about it. What might I do to warn that person? Let me read this story to you from Luke chapter 16. Again, Jesus is telling it. Jesus is a fabulous storyteller. He told about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had everything he wanted. The poor man, Lazarus, sat at his, at his gates begging and didn't get anything. And then they both die. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father, I beg you, please send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, no Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, I've got a friend who's neglecting this salvation, waiting for another way. There is no other way. I know that, Father, I know. But he thinks there's another way. He thinks he can be good enough to get there on his own. He thinks that he's in great danger. 
Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. Can I do something to help him? Yeah. What? What? I, I did that exercise for myself. Um, there are five people that I'm praying for regularly that they would come to know Christ. I don't think they do right now. I really want to see them, or I at least want firm assurance and fruit that they really do know Jesus. And there's one particularly that I, I'm praying for. And that's pretty much all I can do with that person. Now, you say, oh, you can. You can ask him to lunch. Uh, you could go play tennis together. You could do, oh, this guy doesn't play tennis. And no, we don't really know each other all that well, but I, there's a long story of how I do know of him, know him. But I can pray for him. So that's one of my applications from this passage. I'm going to do that lest he neglect such a great salvation. How about your friend, your family member? What might you do to keep that person from neglecting such a great salvation? Warn, warn. Pastor Sven and Pastor Ole were two pastors of churches that were very close to each other on a highway out of town. Um, Ole was the pastor of the local Norwegian Lutheran church. Sven was the pastor of the Swedish Covenant church. And they were out there, and their churches were right across the street from each other. And they're, out there, and they're pounding a sign into the yard and kind of waving it until they can get it in the ground. But uh, cars go by. And so the, the sign says, The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it is too late. All caps. Exclamation point. And this car went speeding past them, and right when it went by, the driver leaned out the window and yelled, yelled at him, Stop bothering people, you Scandahoovian religious nuts! And, you know, and he goes screeching around the corner, and then they hear, <laughs> splash! And uh, Pastor uh, Sven turns to Ole, and he says, uh, That's the third one this morning. And uh, Pastor Ole says, Yeah, do you think maybe... The sign should simply say bridge out. Yeah. Might be good. Just bridge out. You know, it's, we're not nutcases to tell people turn around before it's too late to offer a warning to somebody we care about. So perhaps that's an application. All right. Uh, so there you, there you have it. I think uh, pretty well we've gotten it through. Uh, greater danger, greater up. I've got one more point. It's from the first verse. I said we'd start there and that we would end there. We're going to end there. Listen up. And we'll review here quickly. Listen up um, because there's a therefore. Because of what I have said previously, the therefore tips us off to that that begins verse 1. Therefore. Another word of rational argument and of reason and of consequence is that word for that began um, verse 3. For. And so from that word, we can see these consequences that come. For, for there's an argument, verse 2. For, and then he gives that, that was great, this is greater. And he gives the argument, and we get that argument. The one other word that makes this argument is lest, in verse 1. Lest, and there is a, a concept of consequences. There are consequences of neglecting this word. Therefore, we must pay much closer Attention. Closer shows that a comparison is going to be made. Pay close attention to that. You pay better, even closer attention to this. Closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There is a danger. You're saying, I'm, I'm completely convinced 
that I have this message of salvation in Jesus. If I die tonight, I know for certain that I would go to be with God in heaven. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. I'm leaning on him. I get this message of Hebrews. That's all great. Apparently, it is possible for you to drift away even now. The movie Castaway has a Memphis connection, right? Some of you know the connection. Lots of connections, probably. Some of you work at FedEx. I was in the movie. I was in the background. I was in the crowd scene here. Or that was my house where they filmed the rain scene when he comes back. That was my house, which it was. It was the house of Wilson, Carolina, or where they filmed that scene. So that's pretty cool. You know, we know people whose house was in that, whose company was in that. There were lots of things in that. But the one who was the most impressive actor in the movie, according to some critics, the most impressive, and Tom Hanks was nominated for an Academy Award Best Actor. He didn't get it, but he was nominated. But the person who should have gotten it, well, I shouldn't have said person. The volleyball that should have gotten Best Actor was Wilson. And you remember Wilson, you know, that he cut his hand on, and he get this volleyball washed ashore, and then he sticks it on there, and the hand print, and then he drew a little face on it. And then he started just joking with himself, talking to it, because there's nobody else around. And after a while, you know, psychologists have studied this movie and said there's very truth to that, that human beings are such social animals that we need connection and we need all of this. And so he's talking to this volleyball. Do you remember the scene at the end when he finally breaks free from the island, gets out of the coral reef, he's out in the high ocean and the seas, he's about wiped out and dying, but he wakes up to realize that Wilson has blown off of the raft and he sees Wilson out there in the distance. And he dives into the water. I mean, shark-infested water probably. I mean, it's like, I don't know. But he goes into the water to get Wilson. And his raft is back here. And so he does have the good sense to go back and to get a rope, a vine that he has made a rope with, and try to pull the raft, but he can't. Because what's Wilson doing? Swimming like crazy to get away? No. Wilson's a volleyball, y'all. Have you got that? He's not doing anything. He's just drifting away. Just drifting away. Satan wants to get you or to get me, he's very likely not going to come at you full frontal and just try to knock you out. He is going to get you comfortable, and he's going to let you just drift away. And my message this morning is simple. Listen up. Do not let that happen. Pay much closer attention to this word of salvation in Jesus that we have been given than you've ever paid attention to any other message in your life because your eternal salvation is at stake and perhaps the eternal salvation of others whom you influence. Do not drift away. You don't have to row in the opposite direction from God. You just have to slip into the world current and it'll take you right out of Second Presbyterian Church, right out of Amen Bible study, right out of connection with Jesus. And the world, the flesh, and the devil will just drift you right down the street and to where you don't really connect, maintain that connection. You wouldn't, you'd be shocked that it happened, but it happens by degrees, like the frog in the kettle who gets burned up, but he didn't even notice the heat because it was such a gradual increase. Be careful. Do not drift away. Do not neglect such a great salvation. Let's pray.